cliffcentral.com. All right, so it is, um, it is time for the burning platform. We've got lots to talk about today. Uh, I think we'd start off with something um, that I'm, I'm sure everybody has an opinion on. And Hadman Pretorius is here to join us. Hadman, of course, is with the IRR. He's the head of strategic initiatives there. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, the things he's written about in the last while. And we know that they've been working very hard in, in the last few months, uh, the IRR. So first of all, uh, Hadman, can you hear us? Yes, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Good to see you or hear you. Um, so Hadman and Pumi, let's just start off with something that I think all of us have been thinking about. The president gave the State of the Nation address the other day, and everybody's been responding to it. I see Julius Malema, and I'm sorry to start with him because he isn't the most important person in politics in South Africa, but he tends to suck all the air out of the room, like Donald Trump did in America for such a long time. And, you know, what happened was Julius Malema said that judges are not untouchable. He's basically attacked the judiciary and said that um, we need to be very careful about some of these judges. Um, he says they've received bribes. He says uh, a lot of them are part of the Soro Ramaphosa campaign. Uh, he's obviously launched an offensive against the president, and this isn't surprising considering he spent some time with the former president at Sinkandla the other day. And Julius is clearly trying to start some pressure from one of the sides. But the acting minister in the presidency, uh, Kumbudzo Njaveni, challenged him and said the following said, we all know that when you start to make noise against the president and the judi- judiciary, to the extent that you stop short of calling for an uprising against the judiciary, we wonder what it is that you're afraid of. A good question from Chaveni says, uh, Malema's got a newfound support for former president Jacob Zuma and the ANC-backed Zuma too. Uh, he's the former president and the former president of the country, and we support him. But the rule of law will apply, says this minister, with no fear, no favor, even to you, Honorable Malema. So what do you think is really going on here? Are there still charges hanging over Julius's head? Is there still stuff that they can use to intimidate him? Is that why he's behaving the way that he is? Is that why he's searching for uh, new friends in Ngandla? And is it why he's so afraid of the judiciary? Anybody got a theory? Julius is a politician. Julius is a politician and he is, you know, the, the thing about Julius that I, I'm astounded a lot of people are not um, getting to is the fact that, like most politicians, he cares about power and he cares about himself. And everything he does is to maneuver towards that. I mean, he, he needed the relevance. That's why he went to go and sip tea. And obviously, he now has to, he, he has to create this thing around the judiciary because there are charges hanging over his head. And there are, there, there, there are some on the horizon that haven't been spoken about yet. So now he has to foment this, oh my goodness, we can't trust this judiciary. These people are tainted. It's definitely in the tea that he was sipping over the weekend. It's definitely something that they spoke about. And and to bring Ramaphosa, for Ramaphosa to now be the person that's in his sights. Right. Because again, it's just politicking. And the, the EFF, unfortunately, have plateaued. They've plateaued. They're not gaining new um, traction. And, and in fact, I think probably losing some ground as well. So he needs to stay up there. 
Would you agree largely with that, Herman, and especially because we know that there is no love lost between Julius and people like Praveen Gordon, right? Yes, um, I, I would agree to a certain extent, but I would add that it's difficult to keep track um, uh, with Julius Malema where love is lost and love is gained. Because, I mean, we've gone from people killed to Zuma to the to credit for getting rid of Zuma <laughs> to now reading the tea leaves with Zuma. <laughs> Um, I, I think his next political campaign slogan will probably be Yes, we in Kandla. Um, and then we have the same with Tuliman Mansela. I mean, if, if, if ESCOM could attach a dynamo to Julius Malema's political positioning, we'd have a never-ending source of dynamic power. That would be wonderful. But one thing that we must take into account that is actually quite risky and quite dangerous for South Africa at this point is that when you criticize the judiciary, that is part of a free and democratic system, you must be able to to criticize judges. Right. So that's the one thing. Uh, Malema is sort of right on that. There are questions to be asked about the independence of the South African judiciary. Right. Malema is also right about that. There are problems about a corrupt uh, some corrupt influences on the judiciary, perhaps Judge Schlope being the most obvious example about that. So he touches on elements of truth, weaponizing them for a quite devious end. And I must say that the, the, the Zuma Ramaphosa tension of which Mr. Malema's participation is part is really, really dangerous because on the one hand, you have the ANC willing to sacrifice for the cause of the NDR. So that goes in the column of they will act against Zuma. Right. But then you have in the other column the reality that Zuma was the head of intelligence from Contra and knows not only where the bodies are buried, but who buried them, when and why. Yeah. But then you have the, the, the <laughs> fundamental issue here that this will end up in the judiciary. Judge Zondo is currently just, you know, a proxy kickball for the judiciary and it will be in the service of the ANC's ever-increasing ambition for greater government power if the judiciary is discredited in the broader term because the judiciary remains a check on government power. So we're into very dangerous waters where the criticism Malema raises might actually be valid but the problem is he utilizes that criticism in a way that is not supportive of freedom, but is in fact supportive of either devious political yeah. actors or greater government power. Such a good point. Um, both of you uh, are spot on here because, and this is one of the reasons I love doing this show every week, is I get to, I get to borrow the good ideas that you've thought through, the two of you, or anyone else who's a guest on the show, and then I get to pretend it was mine all along. So let's just <laughs> let's just focus on obviously something that everybody has an opinion on, and I'm sure that the two of you have thought about this quite a lot. Jacob Zuma basically giving the middle finger to the Zonda Commission. What does this mean? We saw some very vociferous reactions from people across the political spectrum on Monday when he just didn't pitch. What do either of you have to say about the fact that this man clearly has... Uh, no need to prove himself to anyone. He certainly doesn't feel like he needs to appear in front of Judge Zondo. He doesn't owe him a, a damn thing. He's He couldn't care less if he's held in contempt of court. Uh, is he just being stubborn because there's no other way for him to behave? Or is there more going on here? And uh, is, is this more of an F you to the president, uh, the current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and to the ANC that won't support him? What's really going on? 
Because Jacob Zuma being Jacob Zuma. Jacob Zuma has never cared about anything but Jacob Zuma. We know this. Mm. And for a long time, the ANC has has allowed him to get away with it. And from the very beginning, from the very beginning with 700 charges against the man, they still supported the man, supported him into being the president. And now he's just being himself. This is this is always the way that he has been. He's always seen himself as above the law. And he, he continues to behave that way. There is no constitutional crisis. Really, there is no constitutional crisis. There is a crisis of leadership. This is where the president needs to be the president of the country and put the country before the party. This is this is all we need here. And this do is, and do the what? President do arrest and Shamila and Begitele, all of those people need to do their jobs. And arrest all of those people uh, need to do their jobs. Arrest him, try him, whatever you know. Put him in prison. Let him let him sit in prison as anybody else who defies a court this, of law. This goes to your to this goes to your point earlier, Pumi. Before this show started, the burning platform started. This is where you said if there aren't consequences, people are going to continue to behave badly. I think one of the points being made by um, I think it was Glennis Breitenbach on Monday when I saw her on the news is if Jacob Zuma can get away with pretending that the courts don't matter. Then any normal why should any normal person why have to? We? Yeah, why should we have to comply with the law? Yeah, I, I think one thing that we must realize what the, what this shows is that the ANC isn't fit for the 21st century. It is a 20th century liberation movement um, that de facto and de jure, um, whatever the merits for and against, was a terrorist movement, was an illegal movement. And when you're an illegal movement fighting for a just cause, um, as the end of apartheid was absolutely a just cause to fight for. When you operate outside of the law, whether that law is, you know, uh, morally suspect or morally upstanding, you develop habits. Uh, you develop some uh, body-burying talents. So if you go from a liberation movement operating outside of the law for a just cause, you develop uh, a massive collection of skeletons and closets, and you combine them when you move into power. Right. And we saw that very early on with the arms deal, being perhaps the most obvious example where skeletons and closets from the liberation days, from the days of operating outside of the law of the land, that law being suspect, but still you were outside of it, um, really created this fertile ground for dodgy dealings. And that has never gone away. In fact, it's gotten worse. And the real check on why President Ramaphosa and why the NPA, why the executive can't act in the way it should, is because if you look at the NEC of the ANC, more than half, uh, my colleagues and I could attach more than half of them to serious allegations of corruption. Then you've got about uh, another third that, that you know, um, can't be clearly connected. And then you've got about eight members of the NEC who are what I would say above reproach. Now, if you're in a situation where you need law and justice to kick in to save you politically from the tsunami, but you also realize that by doing so, you are sentencing your own power structures to some very, very tough questioning in the courts, you're in a catch-22. 
um, or like Jacob Zuma might say, a catch-22, 36,704. Listen carefully. But the thing you need to do here is very clearly understand that the rail politic clashes with the constitutional politics here. Because I think Mr. Ramaphosa is probably a good guy, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's got a few... Uh, skeletons buried somewhere that Mushalozi is very, very aware of and willing to lose. That's the problem here. If Jacob goes down, York, that man, we know he has a history of going down, but let's not go into that. If he goes down, he will take a massive chunk of the ANC with him. But if he, if he had it to spill it, these are the days. Right these now. are the days where Use he it. spilt it. If he had it to spill it, Correct. these are the days. He's been threatening for years to spill something on someone. And and to this day, he's not been able to, to produce anything. Right? He's not been able, not even not even once kind of go, pick a boo, look what I've got. You know, right. he's, he's, he's always just threatening it. And these mm. are the days, if he was going to do it. And I, but I, I do think that's one of the things, you know, you, you said that uh, the ANC was a, a liberation movement and that's not fit. for. And this is, you know, this has been about 26 years and liberation movements around the world, Israel, Zambia, around the world, that's what they have. They have about 20 years where they in government and then they, the changes are. So that's where we are. And this is more, for me, it's more than just about the ANC and the government and what's happening within the ANC. I think the ANC for all intents and purposes is dead. And it's, it's really about the South African political landscape. It's about the fact that what, we, what we're looking for, what we're all yearning for, is we're yearning for, for the new age party that can take us where we need to be. And unfortunately, none of the opposition parties are stepping up. Right? None of the opposition parties are stepping up to that to that No, they're not. Plate. I mean, that's under, and because of that's that, undeniably because of true, that yeah. the, the electorate is, is stuck with what it's stuck with, you know? And so people are kind of the going, devil, The devil you know. There are people who are never going to vote for the DA, you know, because we do have that in this country, you know, um, what in America they call yellow dog politics, people who would rather vote for a yellow dog than vote for the opposition party or whoever else. And then we've got two yep. very polarized. So the four big parties that we have, we've got the EFF and the FF on the other side, where they're so polarized that most good South Africans are kind of going, yeah, I can't, I can't go for either one of you two, right? And then there's the ANC and the DA. The DA, for all intents and purposes, looks like the system that brutalized so many South Africans for so long. So it's difficult for people to see themselves voting for that party. And then you're left with the ANC. That's why people don't show up to the polls anymore. And then the ANC wins because right. that's how democracy works. I mean, Gerald, my, 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 my quickly jump in here. Just sure, sure, a few sure. points. Firstly, is that I think Pumi might be onto something with that if he had something, he would have spoken by now. I hate to, this early in the morning, compare Zuma to Saddam Hussein. But Saddam Hussein made believe that he had weapons of mass destruction despite right. not having it because that was a power play regionally. Might be a similar situation. So, I think in, a, right. in other words, that he might be uh, bluffing. Yes, yes. And the problem is, if you are compromised, you don't call someone's bluff in a Mexican standoff. So I think that's why his bluff hasn't been called, because there's just enough doubt going right. around that no one can say, well, I know I'm in the clear. 
And then yeah. Puri says we need a new age party. I thought that was the ANC, but it, I think you need a different new age um, <laughs> other than the newspaper. Um, and then a last, the failure, the failure of opposition politics in the last decade has been to, to, to be petty competitionalists for each other's votes rather than building a system of new voters being accessible through the ballot box. 35 million people are of voting age in this country. The ANC won the 2019 election with just over 10 million. Yeah. We've got 25 million people who could have voted who did not vote for the ANC. I'm not saying that questions their legitimacy. That's not how democracy works. You show up, you matter. But the thing here is that there is this chunk of voters that for, to my immense frustration, opposition politicians have just been petty, small-minded campaigners where they haven't managed to build a new coalition alternative. I just, I, um, I think and, it's, and it's, that's just tragic. It's probably also worth saying, and this is a, a message we've just got now on the, on the, on the WhatsApp line, that the, the DA calling them a, a you know an apartheid party is unfair because the DA is not made up of any of the apartheid stuff. We know what happened to the NP; they got rolled into the ANC, which I think is appropriate. And and yeah. there's so much about the ANC right now that reminds many of us of that old regime, especially the the way that they behave. I think you know you've got to take cognizance of the fact that that no one in the DA, even though people will complain about representation in the DA. You can't say that they're an apartheid party. No, that's not what I said. I said they look like so, in other what words, the past regime so in, looked like. Does that mean they're too white? Too many old white men. Too many old white I, men. If, if, if I may, might add something here, I think that, like, look, I, I'm a natural DA voter. I didn't vote for them last time, but if someone were to vote for the DA, I would be a, you know, some of the lower hanging fruit. I mean, that's not the first time I'd be calling myself a fruit. But um, what the DA did wrong over the last 20 years is crucially, it started playing the ANC's game of racial politics. That's why I think Pumi is right. It bought, it, it seeded the ground of racialized politics, thereby stacking the deck but, against it. All right. On, from the, I, I don't disagree with either of you on that front. And I wasn't, I wasn't the one accusing you of this, Pums, but I think it's worth, no, it's worth taking, taking cognizance of because this is how perceptions are built. Now, having accepted that as, as a, a point of view that some people have about the DA, can I ask you why we keep seeing this, this specter of the white people who are really in charge being raised by people who are obviously in charge? You know, Tito Mboweni the other day tweeted out this thing about how white people are all responsible for this. I mean, what the hell was that all about? First of all, have you, you're the finance minister. You're in charge of the purse strings of the country. For you to still be blaming white people is just such a slave thing to do. And then Julius Malema comes back from Ngandla and says, no, the real bad guys in the background here are these, these white business interests who are supporting Cyril. Now, I'm no fan of the white business interests that have allied themselves with Cyril against the population of this country, particularly when it comes to lockdown regulations. And I've said as much. I've also said that the corporate world of South Africa is a craven and weak place filled with people who haven't got spines, who haven't stood up to government at any stage, with the one exception when um, they, they put in uh, Des von Royen. 
the only time we saw a little bit of metal from the banking sector and everyone else. Otherwise, these guys have been licking the boots of the ANC every step of the way. And it's been a very mutually beneficial relationship. Because so they are loyal to their money. Of course. They are loyal to their of money. Of course. Right? But the fact that this keeps being turned into this now much debunked white monopoly capital theory is driving me crazy. And even Tito jumps into this shit. You, because he's under pressure and he can't perform. If you can't perform, so I'll use this analogy, you know, because I have a child who struggled at school. The one thing that happens is when you are under pressure, what you try and do is you try and move away from the point of pressure. Unfortunately, Titomboweni is not performing and he has no new ideas and he has no solutions, which is what his job requires him to do. And he has, and because no, and he has no money at the moment either, <laughs> crucially. Dude, and because he can't perform and is under so much pressure, what he's doing is he's, he's taking everybody's attention away from what they should be looking at and he's trying to kind of steer everybody's attention away. And what do you do? You go to the place where you are most comfortable. You go to a place where you think you have some kind of moral authority. And that's what he's doing. You know, he's just, he's going back to the place where he knows. He's going back to his foundation. And it's because he's got no ideas and he's under pressure and he's not performing. So, I, I think um, uh, if, uh, a good way to explain this is um, the fiscal credit card declined, the taxpayer card declined, the IMF card declined. So what's the only card that he has left? The race card. Um, so, I mean, if, if you only have that card left to try and pay with, you, you play with it. But I think one thing that we must, again, I'm going to sound like some lily livid double speaker, but South Africa must be very clear that we don't have a real free market here. We have crony capitalism. We've had crony capitalism for a hundred years. The businesses that are, the banks, let's take just the banks, they work just as close to the NP government as they are now to the ANC government. The reason they stepped up when the weekend special finance minister made his appearance is their own interests were threatened. So they didn't act in the interest of clients. They didn't act in the interest of South Africa. They acted right. in their own interest. And we've got a very, very toxic mix of corporate and government working closely together. I won't name names, but let's call it the NHI and Mishkaveri, um, that you can kind of just keep an eye on that for everyone listening at home. Yeah. But then one thing that I, I really want to add here is and this is going to sound controversial, but hey, why? what else is the burning platform for? There is a segment of white South Africa that Tito Mboweni absolutely got right. And that is the segment of white South Africa that sees black South Africans as incapable of handling the risk of freedom, incapable of handling the risk of full economic emancipation, incapable of handling the risk of full property ownership. Now, I, um, I appeared last night on Volimar Pelser's program with Ruth Hall. Yeah. And I wouldn't accuse her of being that type of white uh, South African, but there's a very dangerous element when you start supporting uh, state power to make black South Africans not property owners, but tenants of the state. You're just reintroducing the era of property barons, but instead of rich capitalists, You've got the government in power being the property baron. So while Tito didn't mean to, I think he stumbled on some truth 
that hmm. too many white South Africans, not a large chunk, but too many, think that black people are incapable of competing on merit, incapable of handling their own finances, incapable of looking after their and kids. That the state and, should, and that the state should be their ward. Absolutely. Daddy Cyril and Mummy NDZ. Hmm. <laughs> and the, the danger, though, with, with politicians is that all they need is a grain of truth. Right. All they need is a grain of truth because that's what gets exploited in terms of getting the masses onto their side. It's just that one small grain of truth is enough for people who, who do feel disenfranchised to feel like they are being seen. And well, that's where the danger is. A lot of white racists will love this story, but it looks like a, a white guy might be turning ESCOM around after all. Um, <laughs> it's completely incidental to my mind that <laughs> this guy is white. But it seems that there's a huge amount of pressure on government to actually start correcting for ESCOM's uh, disastrous last, what is it, 20 years. Um, he actually said, Andre Dereta, I think in the news this week, that he reckons by September we will not have any more load shedding anymore. Um, do you believe him? No. Do you think, well, do you think I really that, want to. Yeah. We, not with this casting. I mean, this is brave. This is brave casting from, from Central Office. But we've seen this film before. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. And just one thing that also happened in the news this week that is uh, attached to this is Venezuela has started sneakily privatizing some parts of its economy. So, I mean, you really reach a point where even the Maduroists of the world must go, oh, shit show. Um, how about we not continue doing this? And, and well, if, on, that note, on, on that note, Herman and Pumi, I'd like to hear both of your thoughts on this. So. Texas is one of the more right-leaning states in America, and Texas has pretty much privatized its power supply. Leftists in Texas are arguing that the failure of the Texan power supply is because it isn't under state control. They say that because it's a private power utility and they didn't make provision for a bad snowstorm, and now much of Dallas and Houston are without power, without heat, and it's very cold. I mean, we're talking 20 degrees Fahrenheit in some of these places. You know, water pipes are freezing. There's, it's, it's a real crisis for a supposedly first world country. It's very embarrassing. And I see lots of jokes from South Africans about, oh, look, we've exported load shedding. But this does raise the argument that the private sector is not always, certainly in these people's argument, not mine, that the private sector is not always the best way to deal with these things. So in direct contrast to what you've just see, said, Hanman, how do you approach the problem with Texas power and the fact that private businesses can't supply the power any better than government might have? Well, I think um, a first tiny factual point is I, I, I'm yet to see the argument made that the private companies invested in power generation sources that the government would not have invested in. If those wind turbines were now in state control, I mean, you'd be at the same excrement creek without the same paddle. So I don't really buy that this is a failure of private sector or public uh, sector. I don't think that that really helps that debate a lot. But I want people to, uh, um, if there's one thing you do today, uh, other than listening to, to uh, this, go watch the maiden speech of a young British MP called Kenny Badendock. Kenny Badendock was born in Nigeria, and when she was 13, her family emigrated to the UK. And uh, she's a conservative, a black, young conservative born in Nigeria. I mean, I, 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 the, the, I just 
get excited at the thought when she's brilliant. And she makes this argument um, that uh, she, in Africa, grew up under the type of state control that the Labour Party now proposes. And she gives such a striking um, 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 case for you know freedom uh, and the private sector that it's 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 quite significant. But on on this this thing, I don't I don't believe in the free market because I believe it's the cure all. It's the panacea. I, I'm very pragmatic about the free market. It's the difference between having all the eggs in one basket and yeah. having several eggs in several baskets. That's the core difference between the state well, I mean, you did free say, market. You, you, you did also draw the distinction between crony capitalism, which is our experience of capitalism in South Africa, and the kind of free market system where if I'm going to trade with Pumi, it doesn't need to involve the government. Yes, and I think there are very clear limits, very clear limits to the free market in a country like South Africa. For example, water. We're a water-scarce country, and so you've got the typical situation of low supply, high demand. So if you were a free marketeer in absolutism, you'd say water must therefore be massively expensive, and people will it will be prohibitively expensive, and people will literally uh, die of thirst. So that's a problem the market can't solve and shouldn't solve. Um, so so it, let's be realistic. I hated 2020 for the fact that it made everything binary. You either hate Trump or you love Trump. You're either pro-COVID, thinking it's the, well, not pro-COVID, you either think COVID is the end of the world or you think it's a mosquito bite. And I just wish this binary stupidity yeah. could go back to where it was before 2020. Because then you can say, look, I don't like this thing. But there's an element where it needs to step in. Um, and I, whatever the Texas situation is, I don't think, um, I don't think the socialists or the leftists in that regard is making the strong argument to think they are. Yeah. All right. Very good. Uh, so Pumi and, and, uh, Hanman, there, there are a couple of things we need to discuss. And you, you wrote another article about expropriation. What's the situation at the moment? How has anything changed, Hanman? And why should we still be worried about the expropriation without compensation bill? What's going on? Cool. So, um, briefly, there are two processes uh, going on in Parliament that South Africans should be aware of. One is the changing of Section 25 of the Constitution, and the other um, that started in October last year is the uh, expropriation bill. Now, the, the, we are currently very much focused on the expropriation bill. However, the Section 25 amendment is now again going to become a hot story. Now, the expropriation bill is to replace the 1975 Expropriation Act, which is a problematic act. It's a bad act. It, it operates under the idea of parliamentary sovereignty. It ignores the fact that we now have a constitution because, well, it dates from 1975 when we had parliamentary sovereignty and not a constitution. Now, the real danger of this act is it's not limited to land. It makes every form of asset in this country, every form of property in this country, it makes vulnerable. And if you follow, anyone followed our campaigns on prescribed assets last year, some of the dots should start to connect. Um, so it's not just about property. It does not do anything to empower South Africans to become property owners. It creates the circumstances for mill compensation, but not in a closed list. So that list can be for any reason. And a harrowing realization that South Africans must, you know, start waking uh, uh, up to is the fact that we will have almost 300 expropriating authorities in this country with the ability 
to expropriate property for reasons not closed in this bill. And of those 300 expropriating authorities are the 257 municipalities, only 8% of which in the Auditors General got good and unqualified uh, uh, audits. In other words, now, not, the people, not, not the people you want uh, being able to appropriate things. Absolutely not. If you're cash-strapped, either as a provincial, national, or municipal government, and you need assets, and this bill gives you the power to grab assets, come on. I mean, it's like writing a blank check to a delinquent if you think they're not going to rob you blind. Sure. So uh, how do we stop this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the first thing is the public, the public comment. Uh, because I, I, is, I, ask, I ask because we don't want to just be one of those shows that talks about these things. I mean, Canton Pillay has been telling us for upwards of two years that we need to <laughs> we need to make sure that our pensions are outside of government's ambit. And unfortunately, and I'm still going to get him on the show to do this, he's going to be, do, be doing a big I told you so um, because they are going to grab those prescribed assets now. And for many South Africans, that's going to mean that their hard-earned, hard-saved, hard-taxed money, the little bit that remains to them in their old age, is going to be plundered by a bunch of people who have shown themselves to be completely incapable of managing money. Yes, and... Um Slight detour on the pension point. If you look at GDP data and economic growth data, it's very handy because if you look at the most successful GDP years we've had, it was around the mid-2000s. What's very interesting also is if you look at the point where the, number, the percentage of pension savings belonging to black people and white people, where that line actually crosses with black people going into the majority, is at that same time of economic prosperity. 70% of pensions in South Africa are in the hand of the pensions of black people. So this isn't a white people, black people thing. This is could possibly be VBS on a national scale. How do we stop it? Well, yeah. you, we've got a period for comments until the 28th of February. Now, I can't promise South Africans that if, that if they participate in this comment process that we will be successful, but I can promise them that if they don't, we will lose this. Um, last year, we had some success convincing a parliamentary committee that a piece of legislation that would have made electronic voting uh, uh, accessible to the IEC as a mechanism, we convinced the parliamentary committee that that was a bad idea by getting 13,000 collaborating with DRSA. The IRI and DRSA convinced that parliamentary committee to scrap that bit of the law. So we have some success in that. But the problem is, if you're fighting against the government, and this government is clearly malintentioned, and you're not making a nuisance of yourself. You're not trying to crash that parliamentary committee server. Yeah. You are making their job as easy as possible. It is about fighting the small obstacles, no matter how trivial. Because if we lay the groundwork now, we can say, Parliament, you ignored 30,000 submissions. We're taking you to court. If you don't make a submission now, we can't make that argument. So it's really, there's no final victory in the battle of ideas. I'm afraid Reagan was right. The, 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 the price of liberty is absolute constant vigilance. So how do we stop this? You get involved. Um, uh, you get involved with the IRO, or Africa, or Solidarity, or DRSA. You become an expert on this. Read this bill. Read what Anthony Jeffrey has written on this bill. When the topic comes up next to a Brian society, make a point to convince South Africans. So, you know, just 
get involved. Don't be part of that 20 million South Africans who could have voted who didn't vote. Um, there's a cost to non-involvement. So at this point, what I want you to do is go and make a submission. Once we have that, we're on to the next fight. Not exactly sure what it's going to be, but my goodness, I can promise you if you don't help us, we lose. Oh, heaven, Pretorius, I could kiss you through the screen. It's what I always say. I could kiss you through the screen. Because that is what it's about. It's you've, about you've been banging this drum for ages, Pumi. You've been banging this drum for the longest time. Get involved. And learn. Make sure, empower yourself, right? And, and we have two things on our side. The one is that our government is actually very inept. right? So things do take a long time to get going and to get that. And the second thing is we've got, we've got about 36 months. We've got about 36 months to, to get involved, to organize, to, to get your friends involved, find a way to, to, be, to participate and be part of something. We've got to stand in the gap, right? We have got to be the people that say this fire no further. We, if, if, if you feel the, the DA is not the right place for you, if you feel the ANC is not the right place for you, this is the moment to be the person that steps up. You remember when we, on, so at now, when we had, um, on the show, Gareth, who said it's inconvenient yep. to become a politician. Right. It's inconvenient to become an organizer. It's inconvenient to to stand in the space where you could get all of the EFF bots kind of harassing you on social media or people hurling insults at you. But unfortunately, that inconvenience is one that more South Africans are going to have to want to stomach if we're ever going to change this country. If we're ever going to change the trajectory on which we are in, more of us must be willing to take that. Because it's like we're all on the Titanic, guys. Whether you're at the bottom or at the top, it's sinking. And if we don't do something together, then we're fucked. (laughs) <laughs> it's about right. I'm allowed to say yeah, that. You, I'm allowed you, to say you, you that. Say what you want. <laughs> so, guys, what about uh, further afield and and the fact that Joe Biden had some very interesting comments during his town hall discussion about China? He almost seemed to gloss over something that is a fairly big human rights issue in the world today. You know, he kind of he's friends with China. He likes President Xi. He talks about him like he's his brother. Uh, Trump did the same, by the way. He, he also is like, we're, we've got a really good relationship. We're, President Xi and I really like each other. You know, all that kind of shit. The reality is that we are, we're watching a, a new kind of Cold War. It's a technological and, uh, an, an intelligence. It's, it's a, it's a war of, of, of information between America and China. And I wonder if Joe Biden has the wherewithal because judging from his performance at that town hall the other night, it seems to me like the guy is just not entirely there. And we've said this for a long, long time on the show that, you know, 78 might be a little bit too old for someone to be running things. But certainly when he said that China just has different norms and just different standards to the United States, and that almost sounded like an excuse for what's going on in Hong Kong, what's been happening for years in Taiwan, what's going on in the Uyghur mountains of Western China. What does this mean? What does this mean? Um, I'm going to do something slightly unorthodox. I need to quickly go get a book off my bookshelf because there's a brutal, there's a very important quote I need to read out. Go so for just it. Just give me yeah, that's, ex- that's, that's exciting. I like this. <laughs> Holmes, do you want to comment on China? 
<laughs> you know, I mean, if, if there's anything that I've come to learn about American politics, is America is very self-centered. America will always do what they feel is right for America. And they will use their might to do that. Unfortunately, America is also losing ground. You know, it's, it's no longer as big, bad superpower that it's always been. And so they have to play that game of politics and they have to be soft with China in order to, in, in order to give themselves a fighting chance, I think, with fighting chance within the space. That's what they're doing. That's that's why Donald Trump was kind of softly, softly, but, but then created, a, I think, created a space where the relationship has come to a head. And now Joe Biden has to pull back. He has to pull it back in, in one way or another. But I think that the power dynamic has shifted and, and China has more of an upper hand here. What do you reckon, Herman? I, I think I think that's right, and I think that sort of plays into this little book that I got. This is <laughs> little red book. book. Yes, it's it's not the little red book. Let me um, see it. But, so this is in front of placement. It is the theory and practice of political warfare by General Wang Sheng. Now, Wang Sheng was a general in the Republic of China Army in the nineteen seventies. Um, you know, opposed to the current Chinese government. And um, this is essentially a little booklet that he wrote on, on how to combat politically um, uh, the Chinese. And there's this incredible, incredible quote. And I just, but peace in the eyes of the communists is a continuation of war, employing means other than military. The communists throughout the world are hoping to attain across the table what they cannot attain in the battlefield. It is a lesson that the free world can learn from the dictum of Lenin that there is no difference between peace and war. The era of peace talks is nothing but an era of protracted struggle. Now, that is one of my favorite quotes in the world because it guts me. It is like ice in my veins because it slightly starts to explain what the Western world has been doing for the last 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall. They've been thinking we are in an era of peace. They've been thinking that war is won. I mean, why disband the troops, beat the swords into plowsheds and hug a commie? The problem is that there is no final victory in the battle of ideas. And what has been happening over the last 20 years is a form of creeping state control, the centralization of power in central banks. I mean, why else would Russia and China own such massive resources of America's gold and such massive amounts of dollars if they can, if they want to, they can collapse their currency overnight. The mistake the West made was thinking that the Cold War is done. It was close to done, but they weren't vigilant. They weren't involved. They got fat and lazy and decadent. And what we're seeing now is that we're reaping the whirlwind. The West is now without identity, caught flat-footed by a superpower with an ideology, with an idea, with an identity, with a mission. And Joe Biden, uh, poor, poor, poor man, um, you know, he, what, what can he do? 
the West has emasculated itself um, in, in the face right, but this of... Is, and that's totally the game Putin has played as well. You yeah. know, he's totally played the long game. He did not come out on well, the other side. He's made sure he when has... He turned off those lines. So both of you, both of you are, are pointing out things that I think many of us have suspected for a long time. And, and if this is the case, and we have no reason to believe it isn't, isn't America still our last best hope against uh, this, this predatory kind of state control, uh, the, the, this idea of, of Big Brother writ, writ large, which really China seems to be espousing in every way, shape, and form. Isn't America the only place that has the strength to be able to turn back this clock? If you're a person who believes in, in personal freedom, individual sovereignty, free market capitalism, where can you go? I'm, I, I think yes and no. I'm a fan of American exceptionalism for the simple reason that it is the first country in history to be based on a philosophy of state, not ethnicity or geographic area. So I, I think it's exceptional in that way. And I think that goes a long way to explaining its success. So that's partly yes, but no. Because I think America has drunk, um, despite its you know freedom-lovingness, it has drunk a lot of the Kool-Aid um, of, of, of massive centralized control, whether that's commercial, whether that's financial, whether that's statal. And I'm going to say something that might sound insane, but again, what else is the burning platform for? I think the hope of freedom lies in Africa. I think the hope of change, of dynamic change, and love but, of freedom, love but of we're markets, all we're already we're all already being turned into a, a, a satellite hive of China because well, we're being exploited, and and we well, we're being patronized. We and and, and I think, I, I, I agree, and I think one thing that, 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 that might change is that the African people hasn't really had power. Governments, African governments have had power, and African governments have been selling massive parts of this continent off to the highest bidder for a long while. But the African people have not yet discovered the gutso and the, the chutzpah that they can actually exert massive power. If economic growth is going to come from somewhere, it's going to come from Africa. It's if freedom also of speech that we have a, sorry, it's it's also that we have we have a youth dividend. We have a, a, a massively young population that isn't mired in, in the old left or right. What we need is we need a more central kind of third way. And I think that's the reason why I think that there's an opportunity for that way to emerge out of Africa is because of our young people and because young people have inherently are rebellious from to old systems. And and this is this is where it's going to have to come from. But we do need to step up. We can't be we, we cannot be islands. We cannot think that each one of us is going to make it on their own. We have to find a way and, and find a way to galvanize all of that all and harness all of that potential that we have i hope you too because, i hope you too are right i mean it's uh, it's very hard for me to to agree with this when i see evidence all around me in neighboring african countries and even in our own of china just really patronizing us in whichever way that they like and taking hold of not only our resources but all of our international uh, ability to exert influence good or bad
I mean, we really are just a, a, a slave state of China in some ways. Look, I'm not saying Africa is going to come to the rescue. I'm saying that if rescue is going to come, it's going to come from Africa. And, and I, I, I arrive at that point by a simple you know, method of cancelling out the alternatives. Will it come from the American North? No. Um, uh, state power is on, in the ascendant. Their protectionism, uh, I, I doubt it will come from there. America has invested too heavily um, in the centralization of power in the last century. Will it come from South America? No, not really. Um, uh, will it come from Europe? No. The European Union is, is a centralization of yeah, Europe, Europe, Europe is exhausted. Yes. And I mean, they've had a long haul and, and you know, they can, they can rest a bit. Um, will it come from the Middle East? No. Um, will it come from the Indian subcontinent? No, because I'm afraid the Indian subcontinent is also quite in love with government power. Will it come from the Far East? No, because that's where the massive issue comes from. There are three possible sources for, for this liberation. Japan, if it can uh, uh, arm itself against China, or not, well, not arm in the military sense, but if it can, if it can start assert, assert itself. Yeah. Yeah, assert itself. But I doubt it can. It could come from Eastern Europe, the old communist countries that are not fully integrated in the, into the European Union, but still remember the scars of the USSR. Or it can come from Africa. Um, so it's not, I'm not saying Africa is going to be the place. I'm saying that if it's going to come from somewhere, Africa is your best wow. candidate. Because I think Bumi right. is right. The youth dividend, uh, the, the, the amount of development that still needs to happen. I think Africa has a very raw deal. It's going through its feudal dark ages in the glare of the 21st century. And that's quite a cruel way for a country to develop, but develop or for a continent to develop. But develop it will. And now the question is, will it, how will it develop? Will it develop into this China vassalage or not? But if change is going to come, this is where it's going to come from. Well, Andre says Mars is our only future. We've got to get off this planet. He <laughs> says Mars is the only place to go. And Raleigh says, I concur. Africa is the next happening spot on this planet. Uh, Young says, I love these discussions. Thank you very much, Cliff Central. Well, thank you to our guests. And uh, <laughs> here's a funny comment. Americans have become too fat to act. <laughs> <laughs> they words. They words, not mine. Right, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you both. Uh, this is The Burning Platform. It is brought to you every week by Nando's. It's your opportunity to check in on current affairs and to hear the thoughts and the uh, the analysis of people like Pumi and Harman. It's very good to have you both on the show. Cliffcentral.com.